guys, welcome back to Keeping It OD Podcast and happy Monday. So in today's episode, we'll be exploring yet another way you as an optometrist can practice, and that is in a private practice setting. Now, two weeks ago, we talked about the journey to become a successful business owner and how to drive business to your practice. But today, we will continue that conversation about practicing and get an even deeper glimpse into what a typical day looks like for a private practitioner in North Carolina. Today, we have with us Dr. Thomas Pinkston, co-founder of the Haywood Family Eye Care in North Carolina. Dr. Pinkston is also a fellow Florida Gator, and he graduated from UAB in 2012. And then he went on to complete a residency in ocular disease and refractive surgery at the Wolfson Eye Institute in Atlanta. Fun fact about Dr. Pinkston is that he is currently training to complete an Ironman triathlon in 2021. So I will stop rambling and let my guest introduce himself and tell us the good, the bad, the ugly about private practice optometry. Thank you for having me. I'm super excited to do this. I really appreciate the opportunity and just love the ability to, to talk back to people that are, you know, kind of where I was just a few short years ago. So I thank you for letting me talk um, a little bit about where I'm at. I am a private practice optometrist in Waynesville, North Carolina, which is the western part of the state in a very small town and I love it. I've been in private practice on my own um, now for since 2016 and I've graduated in 2012 from UAB. So I'm super excited to, to answer some of your questions. Awesome, we're super glad to have you Dr. Pinkston. So you just um, got me started. You graduated from UAB not that long ago. Were you exposed to the business side of optometry as a student? Yeah, so I think optometry school, I think it's kind of well known. I'd I'd be hard pressed to find an optometrist that's in private practice that comes out and says, hey, I feel 100% prepared for business. Um, And I I don't think that's, to be honest with you, I think kind of optometry schools get a bad rap, I'll be honest with you, because they're, they're designed to not necessarily produce business people. They're designed to produce great optometrists and let you pass boards and practice to the best level you can and understand the disease and be able to take care of people. And so it's kind of unfair when you look back, I think to say, hey, we got to squish all this four years of eye eye care um, into that four years and then also be able to give you kind of an MBA type of experience. I think that's kind of an unfair, kind of an unfair rap that they get, but it is, it is hard to, to do all that. But with that being said, there is a lot to learn in terms of when you graduate and when you get ready to just practice. And I think that includes not only private practice, I think that includes just how do I bill and code correctly? You know, what are the ins and outs of the intricacies of insurance? What do I do when I get something that's kicked out in terms of when I prescribe a medication? How do I approach that? And so I think there's a lot of things that that we can all learn from each other, particularly when we're young and earlier in our career, that I think is hard for optometry students to, to just get in that four years because you're so worried about and your next goal is, hey, I got to pass part one, and then I got to pass part two, and then I got to pass part three, and then I get ready for clinic. And so those are all good things you have to go through. So I think that that's one of those things that it's it's room for improvement, but I think the individual has to take that on themselves to some degree. Awesome. So um, did you start looking into that while you were in school, or was it until um, after you started practicing that you thought about it? So I, I kind of always have known I wanted to do private practice, but I think that I was, I'll be honest with you, I was a little overwhelmed in optometry school. I, I did okay. I wasn't the best student. I wasn't the worst student. I was kind of center of the road, 
you know, hanging tight. Um, and, it, you know, I had to work hard in optometry school. And I think that it was definitely harder than I anticipated coming out of college. Um, but it really wasn't until second and third year that I started figuring out, okay, where am I going to go? How is that going to happen? Do I want to do a residency? Do I not want to do a residency? How am I going to end up in private practice? I've always known with 100% certainty that I wanted to end up in private practice. I just didn't know how that was going to come to fruition and if I was going to be successful, frankly, but I always knew that I wanted to, to give that a shot. So, uh, Kind of part of the way that I've come back to private practice is that um, I graduated in 2012 and I kind of have a weird way that things ended up. So I graduated in 2012 and I had a job opportunity lined up for a job to take over at practice. And it was just, it wasn't going to work out very well. So that kind of fell through and it kind of fell through in odd timing in the sense that I graduated in 2012 and I was going to do a residency up until this job opportunity landed in my, in my lap fourth year. And then as I got overexcited about this job opportunity, residency kind of went out the window and I was like, I'm getting, I'm getting, I'm jumping in with two feet. I'm going to do this. I'm going to buy this practice. I'm going to just, I'm going to be the best private practice owner. The job fell through. I think the same day that residency matches came out. And, and so here I am sitting, you know, in Florida, had just have an opportunity kind of fall through my fingertips and I've got no job and I got to go back to Birmingham. And my wife and I were married at the time for a couple of years at that point. And uh, I have to call her and say, Hey, honey, we've been, you've been putting me through school and it's been awesome, but I don't have a job now. So what are we going to do? So I made that call and she, you know, like she always does, she comes like, I know you're going to figure it out. Just call when you figure it out and hopefully figure it out before you get to Birmingham. So at that point, I kind of got on the phone with any residency position that I could find and uh, ended up at, in Atlanta um, because that year there was so few optometrists that applied for residency. There was a, an overwhelming amount that were looking for residents. So I really got lucky because then I ended up in Atlanta doing a residency and it was awesome. I recommend it to everybody. I think it's a great opportunity for students and young optometrists to learn and cultivate their skills. And then long story short, I finished that residency, ended up at a great private practice, um, probably the best, one of the best private practices in Metro Atlanta for a couple of years. And then I had a life change. My father passed away. We had our first child. And I just kind of thought, you know, I, I've always wanted to do this. Now's the time. I don't want to look back and think, I would have, I should have, I could have. And there's really no perfect time to take chances in life, in my opinion. And so let's just do it. And so at that point, I started looking to open up cold or to buy a practice in the state of Georgia, because that's where I was licensed. And randomly enough, so my current partner called me randomly out of the blue um, at that same time that I'm, I'm looking to do my own thing. And long story short, we, we, we ended up coming up to North Carolina, checking it out, falling in love, everything fell into place in this weird twist of fate. And I've been in private practice with my current partner, who's a classmate of mine, um, since 2016, we've been in practice. And so our practice is a, it, we call it a small, I mean, it's, it's technically a small private practice, but by no means is small in our, our minds. And we're in the heart of Western North Carolina. It's been in business since 1955, and it is in the center of a small town. And I, I love private practice optometry. I think it's hands down the best way to practice um, just because of the fact that you get to know your patients, you get to see anything that can walk in the door and you really get to affect the lives of people, your patients, your staff. And so I absolutely love it. And I think, I think I've gotten very lucky in my career in terms of residency and then 
getting a great job right after residency. Um, but I think that does come with just trying to put yourselves in position to learn as much as you can and, and try to make connections with people as much as you can throughout your career, no matter, really no matter how early. Yeah, absolutely. And um, being that you did a residency, it's by no means required in any state. So did you think that that gave you an edge or having practiced in a different setting, a hospital setting, um, did that make a difference in how you treat your patients now in private practice? Yeah, so that's a great question. And I, we, My partner and I will have students that come, whether they're optometry students or pre-optometry students a lot to our practice and ask us, what do you guys think about residency? Because I did a residency, my partner didn't do residency. We went to the same school and we, you know, practice to the exact same level in the sense that we're always bouncing cases off each other. And there's things that I don't feel comfortable that she feels comfortable with and vice versa. And so I really think, honestly, it's a personal decision. I think it's something that you want to look at and figure out what are your life goals? How, how comfortable do you feel coming out of school? I mean, if, if you're a fourth year student, or a third year student, and there are things that just you feel uncomfortable that you don't know if you're the only doctor in the clinic, are you going to be comfortable managing that? If you know that you're maybe just need some confidence, I would highly consider residency. Now, when I did residency, we had a lot of students and a lot of students are, are whizzes coming out, of, coming out of some of these schools with diseases and they're great. And some of them like, they end up doing residencies, but some of them would be fantastic private practitioners year one. So I think from a disease standpoint, it's definitely helpful, but I think by no means is it required. For me, I think what it's helped me most, and I think the thing that's biggest overlooked is kind of back to your business question. I think optometry school doesn't teach two things in my opinion, business, and it doesn't teach you how to interact with people. And I think there's a big deal or kind of a, a big difference in patient care in the way you can talk and explain to your patients. And so you know, if I have Mrs. Jones, who's 80 years old, who doesn't understand why she has glaucoma medication, if she's not using that medication because I can't convince her that she's using that medication, she needs to use that medication, it's kind of all for naught. And so I feel like the biggest takeaway I learned in addition to disease and how I can manage very significant anterior segment disease was learning how to deal with patients in terms of significant disease. How do I manage patient expectations? How do I talk with patients that are upset? And how can I kind of manage some of these more difficult nuances of practice that we don't really get to do until you're in that situation. And I think that helped me be successful to this day, talking with people and talking with patients. Yeah, absolutely. And um, kind of bouncing off of that, you mentioned that, you know, residency kind of gave you, you know, a little bit, a little boost of confidence in interacting with patients and, you know, kind of bearing those bad news that you eventually have to deliver. Um, so what does a typical day look like in your office now? What kind of cases do you get to manage? Um, tests that you perform, treatments you prescribe? Um, do you get any emergencies? Just walk us through a typical day of what you see in your office. So that's the, one of the things I love about private practice. So we have patients and again, our, our town is about 10,000 people and it feels bigger than that because we're the center of the county. Um, but we'll have everything from, I'll have a, you know, two-year-old in the morning. I may have a rental attachment, um, you know, in the next room, I may have a wet macular degeneration. I may have then a glaucoma. I could have a contact lens wear. I could then have a 17-year-old that has an ulcer. Um, so we can have a lot of disease. I'll, I'll be honest, I've been very surprised 
here, because again, I, I practice in doing a residency with a very heavy anterior segment, meaning kind of corneal and cataracts and all kinds of heavy disease process or heavy disease-based um, management when I was doing residency. And here we have a heck of a lot of disease. I've got some friends that are at VAs and other disease heavy clinics and we'll discuss cases and just random things over, over random text messages or, or meetings and whatnot. And they'll be very surprised at some of the stuff that walks into our office in terms of MS and melanoma. And, and it's, it's there. And I think a lot of students, when they come in shadow, they want to say, Hey, I want to see disease. I want to be in a VA. I want to be in a hospital setting. I want to be in this because I want to be heavy disease. And I think one of the things that's great about private practice, no matter where you are, whether you're in a small town or a big town, you can be as heavy disease based as you want. If you want to do glaucoma, you can own glaucoma. You can really get into the, the nit and gritty and make your practice about glaucoma or dry eye or whatever it may be. And I think that's one of the things that I really love about private practice is that you can tailor your patient base once you kind of get up and running to whatever you really like to do. And that is really exciting about private practice because you get to call your own shots. Absolutely. Um, so going off of that, what are some practices or maybe pieces of equipment that you implement in your office that your patients may not find elsewhere? So I think one of the things that I think that we do differently, and it's not, and this is a good, this is a really good question. I like this question. Um, it's not visible in our office. And so we have most of the big toys. And what I mean by that is we have a visual field, we have a topography, we have an anterior segment camera, posterior segment camera. Um, one of the only things we don't have is lipoflow at this point, um, but we have a lot of the, the pieces of equipment that, that allow us to practice to the standard of care that we want to practice to. I think the thing that sets our office apart that I'm really proud of though, is how we run our practice. And so we do things a little bit different and I really enjoy part of private practice is the team aspect of how we build a team. So one of the things that I really find interesting in private practice is how am I gonna get a group of X amount of people to really work towards the common goal of seeing patients and doing the best job we can to provide for those patients. And so we do a couple things to promote every day a team mentality. One of the things is we, we do an open book management system. So all our employees know kind of where we're at in terms of finances, whether that good or bad, which for COVID was very helpful because they know, hey, you know, this, this is going to affect the, the practice and how are we, how can we all pitch in to help, help with that? Um, and we also have a very team approach in terms of kind of own your domain in the sense that if, if you're the technician, be the best technician you can be. If you're the front desk person, be the front best front desk person you can be. And then what do you need from me so that I can help facilitate your progress in your role? And that looks different for every employee. And so that's not something that if you walk in our practice, you see immediately. And we've, tried to cultivate that very hard over the last four or five years. But I think that really sets us apart from other practices because we try to cultivate that team mentality that, you know, that if you walk in the door and the patients, whether you're happy or upset, if you have an issue, whether I'm the one that greets you or my front desk person is, or my tech is, we're all going to kind of a, approach it the exact same way, even if we don't have that immediate answer. Awesome. So, um, 
I'm just going to ask you a question about um, how you run your practice, because I think um, some listeners might find this helpful. So being your own boss, like, you know, it might seem glamorous on the front of it, um, but what are some tasks that you kind of have to do on the um, back end that your patients or listeners may not think about when considering private practice and how you, how do you go about, you know, billing and coding and things like that is, are these tasks that you're expected to perform or do you hire out? Like, how does that work in a private practice setting? Every private practice does a little bit differently. So currently we have, it's, we have a, we're a three doctor practice currently. So it's me and my partner and we have an associate that we just hired last year. And so we're kind of going from a smaller practice to a more moderately sized practice. And so a lot of the things that maybe other practices can't necessarily handle because of the physical size and their, with the staff that they can have, we can. And so things that we keep in house are things like billing and coding. And, um, you know, I know some practices will kind of even out, you know, out of house do um, phone triage and things. Those are all things we try to keep in house. I really like if we can keep it under, under our roof um, from the standpoint of we have control in the sense that I like being able to make sure that things are done to our liking. And so we are very, very diligent in making sure that we build in processes that are repeatable and very easy for our staff. So for example, what I mean by that is if we're going to pick up the phone and answer and say, hello, you know, welcome to Haywood Family Eye Care, whatever we need to, you need to make an appointment. We want that to look the exact same every single time. And that sounds really easy for something like a phone call, but it becomes more complicated for things like insurance and billing and other things that aren't the exact same every every day. The issue that comes in with private practice is when you think of all the decisions that have to be made by 12 employees, all 12 employees for all different types of job roles, that can get very complicated very quickly. So some of those are really fun to do. So like today, we had a meeting with um, a contact lens company to kind of help with some intricacies of our process there. That was fun and exciting, but some of it is doing things that aren't as fun or as exciting. You may think like, oh, it's private practice. Some of it is some boring, you know, dealing with insurance company. That's not my favorite thing to do in terms of having to create processes or looking at how we can make sure that those are or, or smoother. Um, there are some things that are definitely not more fun, but I think you kind of have to take that with every, every modality of, of practice, whether that be private practice, whether that be um, as an associate in a private practice, whether that be VA, there's going to be things in optometry, every job that you love and that you don't like as much so much. And so I think it's really important when you're going through optometry school and when you're in pre-optometry to sit back and look and know that grass can always seem greener on the other side. And there's always things that you're going to love about certain roles. And there's always things you don't love, but try to figure out, okay, I know that I'm going to like this and I know I'm not going to like this as much. So overall, if I have to marry this whole package, am I okay with it? And I think if you do that and you think about how that might fit into your lifestyle and how that might fit into your overall goals, I think that'll help give you a good trajectory of figuring out which modality is best for you to practice in. That was really good. And um, I was going to ask you a question about that. So you seem like you have, you know, pretty good groove of, you know, practices that you do in your own practice, but how did that come about? Did, was it a trial and error situation or did you read research? How did you figure out what you like, don't like, and what works best for your patient, your demographics, and your uh, employees? So I think when it comes to 
processes and protocols, you, it's helpful to do two things. It's helpful to find people that are already successful at what they do. So the good thing about optometry is optometry is a very close-knit community and optometrists, everybody that I've met is usually always very helpful and very excited to help you. So I've never had to pick up the phone, even cold calling people like, hey, Dr. You know, Jones or Smith or whoever, I heard you're really good at this. Do you mind helping me out? Just let me pick your brain on some of the ideas that you have. Most people that are really good at what they do are going to go, yeah, let me help you. I'm super excited because what they're really good at really excites and drives them and they want to kind of help spread the message. And I think that is super cool about optometry because it's, there's kind of this, this fraternal connection between all of us. And I think that really helps. And so usually what we do, if we, we know that, okay, this is what we're doing for you know X process is just not working. Typically the first thing we do as a group, my partner and I, is we figure out, okay, how, who do we know or who do we know that does it better than us? Even if it's not perfect, they do it better than us and let's go figure out what they do first. And then we look at theirs or we can get, or we can figure out in terms of business consultants or you know management type groups. And then we go, okay, we're gonna figure out our process. And we take their process or we take a process of our ideas and we kind of try to mold it down to what we need. And sometimes, we don't have a starting point. So sometimes we don't have any information from anybody. We just say, okay, here's what we need to do. We create new protocols. Sometimes they're wildly successful and sometimes it's a complete flop. And so it's, it's fun to kind of go through that trial and error process because when you're successful, it feels awesome. And when you're, when you fail, it's like, oh, it stinks, but I learned something and say, so now we can make it better. And so there's always a room for improvement. It may just not be at the trajectory you want. And so we kind of make sure that our staff's involved with that back to our former question in the sense that I really enjoy building a team. And so everybody that we interview over the past couple of years, one of the things we tell them is, listen, this is not your average mom and pop doctor's office. And I don't, you know, we, we're on, we're a cute little downtown main street in the mountains of North Carolina and we'll get people that apply that think, you know, we're just going to do things like we always do. And so we tell our employees, if you do not like change, you won't like working here. I don't mean that rude. I don't mean that negative. I just mean, I'm going to tell you that up front because we will, to some degree, which is good, kind of say, hey, we're going to do something different this week. And here's what we're going to do. And here's our plan. And here's our protocol. And we'll get our team involved. And sometimes that doesn't work. And so sometimes that can backfire on us. So that entrepreneurial spirit is good, but sometimes we got to have that reeled in a little bit by our office manager or some of our other team team members. So it's definitely helpful um, to to look at others, but to some degree, you're going to have to fail on your own in a sense until you're successful. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Um, so you've said that you know with your team approach, you're very open and honest, and obviously COVID have affected. Um, almost every single working American. So how did COVID affect your practice? Were you affected differently from corporate optometrists and like what ways um, were you affected? Yeah, so COVID obviously, I think, I don't know anybody that knew that that, that was gonna happen. And that was a big, a big change for us. So for us, we had closed actually on a building space about two weeks before COVID hit. So we were really excited. We closed on this new space and we still own the space and it's going to, we're, we're in the process of renovating it, but we had this plan of we're going to close in March or late February, early March, and then we're going to start renovations and then boom, COVID hits and, you know, just changes everything. And so 
the, the first thing that that changes, we are going to move clinics and hopefully be in this new clinic space and have two and a half times the size of that we do now by the middle end of 2020. We had to go into hibernation mode financially just to make sure that we didn't know what was going to happen. You know, we had to close our doors um, temporarily just due to the recommendations by the CDC and our state boards. And then we had to open up very slowly to keep our patients safe and our staff safe and, and everybody safe. But it was nerve wracking from a financial situation because then you're figuring out, okay, I need to do what's right and make sure that we keep everybody safe. And then my second point, second concern is like, okay, keeping everybody safe, but how long can I keep these doors open and how long can we, can we do this? And so there was some touch and go weeks there where before things started to settle out, we were very nervous. We were very worried because we had this new building that we weren't in. We're still paying lease on a current building that we're in. And then we've got employees. And I think that was the hardest for us to swallow is that we know that we have employees that we, we take that responsibility of their employment very seriously. And I think that is one of the things about private practice that is so engaging is that you're responsible for X amount of employees and providing them opportunities and career opportunities. But in situations like COVID, it's scary. You think you're sitting there going, okay, well, if I got to close the doors, it, just, it doesn't just affect me and my wife and my, my kids. It affects my partner and her family and her kids. Uh, that time we didn't have an associate, but if it were to happen now, it affects an associate. And then it affects all these families that have you know, worked in this small town that you work with every day. So that was the thing that makes it a lot different in my opinion, um, compared to maybe if you're just a standalone um, associate optometrist, it doesn't mean that COVID is any less scary, but it definitely made things a little bit more daunting. Um, now, luckily, things shut down and we came back to normal and it was fine, but it definitely had to, we had to change our approach and we had to cool, kind of cool how, cool down how we were approaching things in terms of an aggressive entrepreneurial manner for 2020, just to make sure we didn't get out in front of our skis in a sense. Mm -hmm. did, were you able to see any emergencies or did you see any patients at all during that time? Yeah, so we were still open for emergencies. So if somebody called, we had a great system set up where um, me and my partner were alternating days. So like I would take Monday, Wednesday, Friday, she would take Tuesday, Thursday, and then we just alternate. And so we would have kind of set short hours where us and one employee would go in. And so we wouldn't overlap employees. So for some reason, the employee or the doctor came down with COVID, we wouldn't cross containment each other. And so that worked out to see employees. And we'd see, you know, a few patients a day that were emergencies and RDs and, and, and random things that needed to be seen. Um, but it wasn't a booming comprehensive care. We're seeing, you know, every everything or everybody. We definitely had to shut it down. And some of that, again, was just determined um, by the need to keep everybody safe and to make sure that we were following all the CDC and state board protocols. Um, but then after after about six-ish weeks, I believe, everything came back in terms of we had to slowly open back up. And now we're still not at full capacity just due to our uh, limitations, um, but it's it's definitely coming back in terms of how patients are returning just to the regular care. Mm -hmm. That's awesome. And with everything that you said, you know, from what a day in your office looks like to how you dealt with COVID and the team approach, um, private practice, obviously, doesn't seem like a good fit for everybody, but what are some qualities that you think successful um, private practitioners possess? Well, I think if you're going to think about going into private practice, I think you need to think about private practice like a roller coaster. In the sense, you're going to have butterflies. Those butterflies sometimes are going to be awesome and they're going to be fun. And sometimes those butterflies are not going to be as exciting because you don't 
know where the roller coaster ends or begins, or you don't know what's going to happen next. And so my, my feeling on this is buying a ticket. I'm taking the ride. Let's go. Let's have a good time. Let's let, I'm going to love the journey, whether it's, it's great or not. I'm, I'm going to have a great time. Um, but I think that that uneasiness is not necessarily for everybody. I mean, if you don't necessarily want to think, well, I don't know if, if COVID hits or we have restrictions or something changes, I may have to close my doors. I mean, that, that's always a possibility, things outside your control affecting your practice. And that can make people feel a little bit uneasy. And so I think you have to figure out what your overall risk level is and how, how much risk do you want to take on. And then think about your quality of life, ultimately. I think to some degree, don't downplay of what do you want out of life? What do you, do you, do you want to, if you want to see patients and practice to a high level, but you don't necessarily want to have to take a phone call or, you know, take an issue at 8 p.m. or go in early or go in on Saturdays or, or, or whatever it may be, then, you know, there's nothing wrong with being a very high level practitioner at another opportunity. And I think private practice doesn't necessarily have to be, in my opinion, that you own the practice. I think optometry is very rewarding as an associate or as a optometrist with a private practice. And so I wouldn't downplay if you're, if you're listening to this and you're thinking, I don't really know. There are plenty of great opportunities that are out there that you can find as a young graduate or a graduate um, that's coming out of school that wants you to be a part of their practice. And you think, listen, I don't know if I want to do this. I just kind of want to, I want to practice to a high level and be surrounded with colleagues that are going to treat me and respect me for what I can do. Go look at private practice. I think it's the best way to practice, whether you own the building or not. I think the idea of ownership isn't just about having your name on a sign in a building. The idea of ownership can start with your mentality of, of just making sure you're the best optometrist you can be. But again, think about how that's going to fit into your life. That was really good. Um, so we have a couple questions that listeners have sent in, and we're going to go ahead and go over those here. So the first question that was sent is how did you buy your practice? Now we've touched on that at the very beginning. Um, but did you, was it, did you have to open it cold with your um, current partner or did you both acquire an existing practice? How did that process go? Yeah. So our, our situation is a little unique because first of all, we are partners, which makes it unique and exciting. And I, I love that about it. Um, and so from a financial standpoint, she, graduated in 2012 because again we graduated together at UAB and she moved over here after we graduated at that point again I went on to do residency and then ended up here a few years later she bought out the uh, that current doctor I think in 2014 ish somewhere in that ballpark and then she immediately started to just change things to her liking and get things get things in and just update things and so then she spent a couple years getting things up and running it was wildly successful. It got very busy. She has three kids of her own. Um, and so her and her husband have three kids and that's busy. And so at that point they were thinking, okay, how are we going to approach this? You know, this is at a certain point you get very busy and it's hard to balance work, life, and just personal stuff you want to make sure that you can do. And so at that point is that's when she reached out to me. And at that point, again, it was just kind of a luck of fate where, Hey, I was looking and Hey, she was looking and and it kind of worked out. And so she had bought it from the prior doctor and then we had kind of I'd refinance or financed it um, in terms of, of, of my portion there. So, and it worked out pretty well. And so we're 50-50 partners. And I think that's one of the things to think about in terms of as a younger doctor, 
if I'm sitting there thinking, I don't really know if I can do this, there are great opportunities with people that are sitting around you in your class where you can kind of divide and conquer, right? You can take less risk, but if you can find somebody that you can get a yin and yang relationship with where, hey, they're really successful with this and I'm really successful with that and this would be a really good partnership, okay, maybe we can open a private practice and we can both kind of take a lease on part-time somewhere and then we can open cold um, at this area and then we can grow this private practice and then let the lease go eventually. And then in a couple of years, have a good private practice. I think that's something that with the financial burden that optometry school causes potentially forced students that can shut the door on private practice all of a sudden, you don't necessarily have to have a wildly five day a week booming practice initially. It doesn't have to look like that and you can divide and conquer. And so I think the thing that I would mention is think about partnerships or think about other opportunities. There's some things there that you need to think through, but think about how that could potentially work for you and try to think outside the box too. Mm -hmm. And I think you've shed some light on the different modalities that, or the different ways that you can practice in a private practice without having to be an owner or a partner. Um, you can be an associate or you can, you know, be a 50% partner. I think, like you said, when people think of private practice, they think of it as, you know, more money that you have to go in debt for. And it doesn't have to be that way. It's just the way you treat your patients and the scope of practice is what makes it, you know, what it is. Correct. And so I guess I will say that, you know, I, I was an associate for three years at an awesome private practice. And I learned a lot, not only to how to, you know, hone my skills in terms of having to deal with patients, but I think it was just helpful to see a really good private practice working as a, just a well-oiled well machine. Because, you know, I, I was an associate there, but I could look around and say, okay, they did they did these things really, really well. And he treated his employees really, really well. And we had all these things going really, really well. And when you see something like that working very well, it's hard to sometimes slow, slow it down and go, okay, it just, it just seems magic, but it's a, it's really hard to get some of those big gears to work without having some friction. And so I think if you don't know, that's perfectly okay. There's no, there's no pressure for you to go out day one and open your own practice cold, go find somebody who, who you can work for, for two years, three years, however long, and, and learn from them, you know, and there's nothing wrong with saying, hey, you know, I, I may want to do my own thing, but right now I want to be the best optometrist of your practice I can be, and maybe I can learn from you a little bit, and we'll figure out what's going to happen in two years. You don't have to kind of call your shot from day one, um, so I think taking some pressure off right out of your graduate, right out of graduation is, is a little bit helpful, too. Mm-hmm. And um, the second question here is, does the location of your practice dictate your scope of practice? Um, so would maybe being in an area that has more geriatric patients um, look different than, you know, an area with younger adolescents? Uh, and what's your experience with that? I think that's what the question kind of meant. So I think that your location can dictate your scope of practice. Um, I think that, but it can also be how you dictate your own scope of practice. And so, you know, if you, if you constantly refer things out and you're not handling things that, you know, maybe that you could, then I think you're going to start to see less and less diseased, right? And so we are very highly medical-based. Like I said, we'll see everything from glaucoma, macular degeneration, melanoma. I mean, we'll see 
we'll see everything because anything can walk in the door. And I have colleagues that are surprised that we see such a high level of disease. Um, and I think being in a private small or in a private practice in a small town, you're just more likely to for random stuff to walk in. But I think even if you're in a bigger town and you or or you're in a, in a just a different geographic area, if you really assert yourself and make sure you're practicing to the highest level that you can, you'll find that those things somehow find you because you're really good at what you do. And so, you know, you may see grandma for glaucoma and then her grandson may come in and he's got, you know, some random retinal issue that you don't know what it is, but now it's in your chair, you better figure out what it is. So there are things that if you take care of people very well and you treat them to the highest level that you possibly can, they're going to reward you by referring their family, referring their friends and being very good patients. And I think that's the best thing you can do to help dictate your scope of practice. Mm -hmm. All right. So the third question we have here, this is just kind of random. How many hours a week do you work on average being that you're your own boss? You don't have a set schedule. Do you find yourself like that you work more, less hours than you were an associate? So this is kind of a loaded question. I'll be honest. I don't, I'm not a big fan of this question. I think the reason I'm not a big fan of this question is it seems like there's a, it's, it's coming from a place of, okay, I start my work at eight and I'm done at five. And if you're looking for that, you're definitely not going to be into private practice. And the reason I say that is I don't, I don't know. I don't know how many hours an average a week. I can tell you that currently I see about 24 hours of patient care. So right now I see about two and a half ish days of patients a, a week. And the only reason I don't see more is my part where we're working out of a small space and we just hired an associate until we get into our new building in the next couple months, we're kind of limited. So her and I share a schedule. Um, so I see, you know, a few days a week of patients, which is going to go up, but there's always something to do in terms of marketing or advertising, or, you know, there's an employee that's on the phone or that, you know, that had this, or that might be late. And so there's times, you know, seven in the morning, we're sending text messages or at nine at night, or I'm on a CE to try to get better at things. And so I don't really consider that work though, in the sense that those things that we're doing after hours, some of them are, are boring and they're not the most exciting things, but some of them are for the good of the practice. And so whether it's, you know, listening to a podcast or listening to or doing research on the next thing we're going to try to get better at in terms of protocols, I don't really count that. And so if I added it up, I'm sure it would be astronomical per week. Um, but we try to, I try to make sure I balance that between early in the morning or late at night. So I can balance work life balance and spend time with my wife and my kids. Yeah. And I think also the fact that you're, you know, your own boss, you don't leave work at work. Work is just, you know, it extends past the nine to five. Um, and I think that's what, you know, a lot of people, need to realize that, yes, it is great that, you know, you're your own boss, but there are some things that you just have to do off the clock or when you're not in the office. Correct. Mm -hmm. um, so this question says, what is your favorite test to perform? So I'm assuming um, like a maybe visual field or something. I, I think that's what the question meant. <laughs> yeah, I really, so I did a residency in ocular disease um, and refractive surgery. So part of the time we were discussing patients' candidacy for LASIK or refractive surgery. And then part of the time we were doing consults for cross-linking and keratoconus and managing, you know, transplants and, and dealing with some serious 
um, anterior segment surgeries. And so I really like anterior segment stuff. And so really the things that really excite me are things there's is things that deal with that, whether it's nuance at keratoconus or doing scleral lenses or things to the front of the eye. And I think the reason that I like it so much is that's kind of, it's not as fun or as cool. Or maybe his hip is, is a cool picture of a retina or a cool picture of an ulcer, you know, kind of a, a nuance at 25 year old who's got blurry vision and he's 2020, but he just complains of it. And we run a topography and we find out he's got early keratoconus. Well, he's been going to three eye doctors and, and no one's found it because it's just very mild and very early and, and to no fault of their own. It's just, it's an early finding without topography, you're not going to find it. And so those things really, I really enjoy because we can really have an impact on patient's life and we can discuss, okay, let's figure out how we're going to get you number one, get your vision better. And number two, we're going to stop this. We're going to stop keratoconus by setting you up with cross-linking and figuring out those options. And so I really like the refractive and interior segment components of things um, because it just, it's fun and it's exciting for me. Awesome. So the last question here, um, this one says, would you ever advise someone to not go into private practice? So I think that's a, a little, that's a heavy question and that's a, some heavy advice, positively or negative to tell someone to say you should go into it or you shouldn't go into it. My advice would be, I, I would never tell you to or not go into it. My advice would be, what do you want out of life? And my, my, my next question would be is in 30 years from now, or however old you are, if you're right out of school in 30 years from now, what are you going to want your, yourself in 30 years from now to tell yourself now? So in 30 years from now, are you going to have a regret, whether it be about private practice or not? And if you think it's there, then yes, you should consider private practice. And if you think, you know, I, I don't think I'm going to have that regret, then maybe not. I, I don't know. I can't answer that question for you. I think, what do you want out of life? And if you can speed time up and your life goes as planned, if you make or do not make that decision, how are you going to look back on that decision? And kind of for me, back to in 2016, when I made that decision, my father had just died and, and we just had our first kid. Then I'm sitting here thinking, you know, I've always wanted to do this. This is always something I want to do. I know I can do it. Just the question is how successful am I going to be at it? And what are the details? And so at that point, I think, you know, I only got one shot at this. This is all, I only got one life to live. How am I going to approach this type of a thing? And, uh, and that's when kind of just came a weird twist of fate. So I think, think about what you want out of life. You don't have to figure it out right now and just try to try to do your best at reaching those goals. And it doesn't have to be, you don't have to hit the entire goal day one, but think about what you want out of life and start now building it brick by brick. And it will work out for you if you stay consistent. That is some pretty good advice. And I think that also goes to our pre-optometry listeners um, too, when you know they're looking at the different optometry schools or what they want. Um, to go into, um, it, whether they want to do a residency or not. I think it's very important that you touched on that, that it's, you know, what you want out of it and how you feel like you can, um, help your patients best. Correct. I, I will add that I think, especially when you're in, you know, pre-optometry school, but definitely when you're in optometry school, you feel like there's this huge mountain in front of you and you feel like, okay, I've got to pass this next test. I've got to do a good, I've got to do good on the OAT. And now I've got to do good interviews. Okay. Now I've gotten into school and a new city and I've got to do really well because it's my first year. And then you move on. And every time there's this new, there's this new elevation of the mountain that you're having to climb. 
And when you're early in your career and when you're a student, it feels very overwhelming. And I, I remember thinking, this is a lot. If I'm having trouble with, you know, organic chemistry or I'm having trouble with anterior segment or wherever I'm at in my career, how the heck am I going to become a private practice doc when I can't even, I'm having trouble remembering this formula or this or that, like, how am I going to do it? And so my advice there would be try to break it down and don't get overwhelmed. If you do your best, you can, you know, if, if you get a C on the test and you studied, okay, forget about it, move on. Just, it's kind of, you've got to approach each section of this career journey and you're going to do better in some and you're not going to do as good in others. And that's completely okay. But try to have a short memory with some of those that are unsuccessful, but learn from them, but don't let them get to you and really hone your skills on what you're good at and just move on. Because I think as a student, I remember really taking those burdens on and thinking, man, I'm not doing so hot in this, you know, or I'm not, or I'm doing really good in here, but I can't figure this out. Take it slow and just focus on what's ahead of you. And, and it will, optometry school will seem like a long four years, but you will end up at that four years. I mean, man, that wasn't as bad. Let's move on. So I think take it each step at a time. And I think that also applies for when you get your first job or when you're doing residency, when you see your first patient, it seems so daunting. It's just one patient. It's just one test. Take it one time, one thing at a time. Uh, that is awesome. I am pretty sure a lot of listeners right now, including also me, like that was so good to hear from someone who is successful and, you know, but you're, you know, owning your own practice and you had those similar experiences and to someone that's still in school and they're having that mindset, it's good to remember that, you know, this is just one step at a time and, you know, you're on your way to something great. Exactly. I think it's just try, try to celebrate your wins and learn from your losses and it's okay. You're not going to be perfect at everything. Doesn't mean accept, it doesn't mean accept failure. It doesn't mean accept defeat learn from it and you're going to do fine. Just keep working your tail off. And again, that's easier said than done. Cause I know in the moment it's so overwhelming, particularly when these big life changes, don't think about it like that. Just one test. It's just one test in 10 years from now. You're not going to remember it 30 years from now. Again, your 30 year, yourself, 30 years down the road is not going to be worried about a test that you did good or bad on. As long as you didn't, you know, cause any huge major issues and forget about it. Right. It's the bigger things, the bigger picture, keep your eye kind of on the bigger task at hand. And that's, again, being the best optometrist you can be one day at a time, one patient at a time, one test at a time, take it one thing at a time. Awesome. Dr. Pinkson, thank you so much for being our guest today. I really enjoyed this episode. Yeah, thank you for having me. Go Gators. Go Gators. So that is all for this week's episode. I hope you enjoyed it and learned more about private practice optometry. To stay up to date with the podcast, make sure to follow us on Instagram at keepin.it.ot. Make sure to also direct any collaboration increase to my email at keepinitodpodcast at hotmail.com. And I will see you right back here next week with a brand new episode. And as always, we'll be keeping it OD. Thank you guys. Thank you.